Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, the only show that takes a look at the obstacles and opportunities open to small to mid-sized enterprises that manufacture here in America. Brought to you by All Metals and Forge Group, with your hosts, Tim Grady and Lou Wise. Welcome, everyone, to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We're glad to be back with you and hope that you've tuned in to hear about the U.S. Industrial Outlook Report that we're going to cover today with Cliff Waldman from MAPI. We'll introduce Cliff in a little bit, but before we go to Cliff and start talking about some global economic issues in the U.S., uh, Industrial Outlook, uh, Lou, how are you today and what's happening in the news? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. Uh, I'm going to make this quick because I know Cliff's got a lot of good stuff to talk about that all of our manufacturing friends need to know about. So that said, I'll go right to our uh, postscript uh, from our show of last week where we talked about uh, lean manufacturing. Uh, we had Christian Kostler, Vice President of Operation of Steel Incorporated, that's S-T-I-H-L, and Michael Daly, Director of Operations of Hypertherm. And they were uh, heavily involved in discussing uh, lean manufacturing, eliminating waste. And one of the interesting things that came out of it was that you know, lean manufacturing is a fairly new term. These people have been doing it for 20, 30 years. We probably didn't know what the name was, so we just called it good management. And uh, today is lean, uh, lean manufacturing. Um, and t- the only other addition to that is that uh, everyone in manufacturing try- is trying to beat the waste monster to death. There's a lot of profit in waste, and uh, it was a great show. I suggest that you go listen to it at mfgtalkradio.com. Um, Tim, that's uh, item number one. Uh, item number two and three is uh, we, we have an exciting period of time coming up. Uh, tomorrow we're going to be at the Women in Manufacturing, WIM, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It's their annual uh uh, conference uh, about women in manufacturing. We will be there. We will be broadcasting and interviewing. And uh, the following week, uh, the next week's show, we're going to be, uh, boy, we, we're really busy. Uh, on Monday, we're broadcasting. Yeah, we we're going to be. <laughs> we're going to be at the New Jersey uh, Institute of Technology, NJIT, um, and we're going to be talking about Manufacturing Week. Uh, it's become a week now. So we're going to be on there on Monday. On Tuesday, we're going to be talking to the folks from Manufacturing Day uh, organization. Uh, uh, Ed Udell will be there and uh, uh, some of the other uh, leaders of uh, the associations that, w- that have been sponsoring this. And on October 2, which is Friday, that's the actual um, manufacturing day, uh, we're going to be going to uh, an event that's sponsored by New Jersey MEP, which is New Jersey Manufacturing Extension Program, partially sponsored by uh, U.S. taxpayers. Uh, We're going to be going there. And then we're doing a bus tour with uh, Passaic Institute, Technology. We're taking a group of students, and we're going to be going to a manufacturing plant, uh, Oxford Oxford uh, uh, Instruments in uh, in uh, Carteret, New Jersey. So it's a full and exciting week, and I hope that our our, our bodies show up where we're supposed to when we're supposed to. 
Uh, that said, Tim, back to you. Well, we'd like to introduce Cliff Waldman, who's been on our show before. He's the Director of Economic Studies at the Manufacturers Alliance for Productivity and Innovation Foundation. And he regularly writes and speaks on U.S. and global economic trends. Uh, Cliff, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me again. We enjoy having you on the show, and uh, I understand that uh, we want to ask you a couple of questions kind of right off the bat. On uh, Well, I've got two subjects for you, one we didn't mention earlier. Uh, the first one, however, is on China. How is China doing these days? Does anybody know? It is. Well, how is China doing? It is slowing, and uh, obviously it's slowing caught the attention of global markets in the past couple of months. Um, I think the, the concern is how much of this is it slowing? Is it getting worse or is it getting better? And even more importantly, how well is the government managing the slowdown and the transition that is taking place um, in China's economic life? Those are all um, questions that are foremost in the mind of global investors and will have a, um, a significant impact on global manufacturing. And, and what's the transition that's taking place? But... Well, it, it's, it's, a, um, it, it's, it's almost a textbook one. It, as I've told audiences before, I can almost pull it out of my graduate school textbooks. Um, early in, this, uh, in, China's de- in the modern China's development, the late 70s, 80s, we had heavy industry as being the driver of economic growth and exports. And that, that's normally the case. That's the way most successful developing economies sort of hit the, uh, hit the launch pad. After a while, though, the, um, as the population becomes more educated, more sophisticated, as the, uh, the economic infrastructure starts building up, um, manufacturing, t- uh, because it, it, it's such a, a productive part of the economy, becomes somewhat smaller, and services and non-manufacturing becomes a larger part of economic life um, in these countries. And from, what, from the data that I am seeing, that seems to be at the begin. We're at the leading edge of that transition um, in China. It can be a healthy thing. It can be a good thing, as long as it is managed as, as it's managed well. And th- it's the management of it that I'm concerned about. In, in what respect, uh, Cliff, is it a concern? Well, let's let's you know. Uh, in terms of the way that Chinese policymakers have handled this, let's not listen to what they say, but look at what they did. There was, I think, markets were particularly upset over a clunky effort to uh, to move the the renminbi, the exchange rate, and even clunkier effort to deal with a um, a, a very expected stock market pullback. And it you know it looks like they don't have a sense of how to manage transitions. Um, in their own economy. It's tricky for any country, but it, it looks to me like they are n- not recognizing that they, can, that they cannot drive the reins of the economy, but just use smart policies sort of, to sort of influence the transition properly, not, not directly targeting stock prices, not directly targeting the exchange rate, but setting the conditions for successful economic growth there with proper regulatory policy, popular monetary and um, fiscal policies, and discussions about investments for, uh, for the future. What I did like hearing, you know, just to be fair to them, what I did like hearing is um, weeks after those events, they were talking about uh, reforms of the state-owned enterprises, of the state-owned sectors. And I hope that they take those reforms all the way. I hope that those reforms include letting certain state-owned enterprises fail. 
Harsh as it sounds, allowing failure to happen is good for uh, for the market mechanism in, an, in a, um, a country that is becoming increasingly um, sophisticated and increasingly true capitalist um, economy. So that's what I'm talking about. I was, con- you know, the world was worried about the the inept way that they manage the exchange rate and stock market events, and that that's why the um, the slowing, which has been in place for some time now, really caught the negative attention of global markets. Okay. Now, bringing it back to the U.S. for a moment, there is one subject that I'm going to kind of throw out there. Uh, Cliff, are you uh, – is Mayfi watching what's happening with the XM Bank at all? Uh, no, that's not really something that we, stu- uh, that we study a, a great uh, deal, no. Okay, okay. Well, then rather than getting into that, because I know it's still twisting in the wind in Washington – why yeah, don't we it is. The, uh, That's why I'm going to hold off on talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about the U.S. industrial outlook uh, here for Good. the next 90 days, which I'm sure everybody is anxious about. Um, how are things looking as we look forward? It's been a tough. Well, let's let's start with this year. It's been a tough year for manufacturing. We had uh, actually somewhat negative growth in the first quarter of the second uh, of the, this year. And it rebounded, but not by much. Very weak, positive growth during the second quarter. Now, what's, what's setting the tone here? Why is that happening? Well, there, there are some transitory factors and some non-transitory factors. We had another unusual winter um, during the, uh, the first quarter of, the, of this year. We also had a, a dramatic slowdown in, in the work prog- progress um, in the western ports. Fortunately, that seems to be resolved, and uh, we certainly pulled out of our winter uh, rather nicely. But... It's the non-trend, the more fundamental factors that are worrisome. For one thing, with the rest of the world being weak and the U.S. you know, having moderate but not spectacular growth, we win the prize of a high currency. Everybody else is trying to push their currencies down, and investors have to, you know, move their money somewhere else. So, you know, we get the value of a um, a strong dollar, which manufacturers needed like a hole in the head. It just we it, they were already trying to sell into um, a weak uh, global market, and suddenly price competitiveness becomes all the bigger of a problem. That's one thing. Secondly, while you know. Plunging oil prices are generally a good thing. 10, 15 years ago would have been taken as a grand slam home run. They're an economic stimulant. They're an inflation deterrent. The problem is is that we've smartly invested in energy infrastructure in this country, and energy jobs and energy capital investment is a bigger part of manufacturing. So with a plunging oil price, that hurt that part of the manufacturing sector. So the combination of a spike in the dollar and a dramatic, not just a falling oil prices, but a dramatic plunge in the oil price has really created a very negative calculus for manufacturing momentum this year. Going forward, we see, you know, it, it, on a good day, if I'm in a good mood, I would call this a, you know, a moderate growth uh, outlook because, you know, the, the, the circumstances of the world are not going to change uh, fairly dramatically. For one thing, I, I don't think oil prices, while they're going to pr- probably recover somewhat, are not going to recover dramatically. So that part of the manufacturing economy is going to be under pressure. And the, the soaring dollar is, you know, is a result of a great imbalance between the U.S. and pretty much everywhere else in the world. That's not going to change dramatically e- either. Both of them will ease up somewhat, but um, a high dollar, low energy price is going to govern things going forward. And therefore, we have kind of a... Um, 
a modest to moderate outlook for uh, manufacturing growth um, in the United States. We we see housing starts, which is a um, key sort of um, uh, cousin sector, shall we say, for the manufacturing uh, world. Uh, you know, coming up to more normal levels. Uh, you know, they collapsed obviously during the crisis, and you know, start, construction always tends to lag reality. So we see see them sort of <laughs> coming up with moderate economic growth, and of course with population growth. But uh, again, we see the, the forecast reflects the constraints put on the manufacturing sector by um, a difficult world and a difficult set of market circumstances that the world has has putting on U.S. manufacturers. I see that in uh, 2016, uh, you're showing in your report uh, a fairly uh, significant jump uh, over uh, 2015, uh, particularly in manufacturing. And not in manufacturing. Well, it's, no, with uh, manufacturing in in twenty in twenty sixteen. Yeah, I'm looking at three point four percent. No, 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 no. We uh, well three three point four. Yes, three point four percent. But that's not spectacular. I mean, uh, a strong strong growth. If, if you look at the eighties and the nineties, strong growth would have a four handle in it. Three point four percent. We had to take our forecast down from two. 2.5% to 2.1% this year. Three point, right. Again, evaluate next year from that lower base. 3.4% is, uh, you know, is, is moderate anyway, particularly from, from this weak year. I mean, a, a strong growth period would have tend to have a four, it would be four point something. And also, one thing you have to sort of realize that, that I, I think is, is getting lost on people. Uh, we had a, you know, we had a Data revised all the time. We, we expect data to revise. Once in a while, all of the major statistical agencies, including the Federal Reserve, which puts out the, uh, the manufacturing output numbers, do a, a major benchmark revision. Usually it goes back five years or so. This one did. And we're finding that manufacturing activity in, in recent years, 2012, 2013, was much weaker than the uh, – considerably weaker than the initial data suggested. So while we thought that we actually have recovered from the the 20% plunge that manufacturing took uh, during the Great Recession, unfortunately, we're still climbing there. So we're we're, we're still in a recovery period, never mind in an expansion period. So, yeah, you know, 3.4% is just, uh, you know, I'd call that moderate. All right, and I'm looking at one of your other uh, graphs where you break you break down uh, by industry, and naturally, yeah. uh, I'm I'm looking at the heavy industry, uh, machinery, fabrication, and so on, iron and right. steel, of and it and it seems as though that the 2015 and 2016 does show in some cases a much better growth uh, situation from a weaker position. So I, I understand. Right about real growth about versus a weak growth. Uh, right now, I'm sure that there are many manufacturing, heavy manufacturing industries and uh, iron, steel, and metals company that would be happy with a 3% uh, jump over the present year, uh, True, as, long right. as, as long as it's going up and not down. Well, let's... Let's broaden out the discussion a, a bit. When I, when I um, give presentations to audiences and I talk about the U.S. economy in general, um, and it's, it's important to give some historical perspective because relative to the rest of the world, 
we're doing better, which is why we won the quote-unquote prize of the high dollar. But it's important to look where we are relative to our own history. And, you know, coming out of the, the Great Recession, we have been hanging around the 2.2, 2.3% average growth levels. Even, if, even in the more mild re, milder recessions, going back to the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the, the very light one in the 2000s, coming out of those recessions, we, we surged for a while, the unsustainable growth, 4 or 5%. Now, nobody expected that to last, but those surges were quite important. Um, and sort of getting the economic machine coming back, uh, uh, you know, sort of getting back to, to business again, it didn't happen this time. At best, we're kind of treading water coming out of the Great Recession. Now, machinery is capital in, uh, first is first of all uh, capital investment, and capital investment has been problematic in this economy um, since about 2000. It's been unusually weak for a whole host of reasons. My colleague Don Norman did an extensive study of this with the Aspen Institute um, here, and we did, there is a you know a, a, an extensive range of both market and policy reasons that uh, capital investment has been weak. Now, you asked about industrial machinery uh, going forward. Industrial machinery, you know, those numbers look reasonably good because we do you know we do after all expect manufacturing to keep growing, and those numbers tend to be volatile. They jump from zero to nine to twelve for the simple reason that you know it's the na- it's it's the nature of trends in in very bulky goods. They are very bulky capital. So even a, a, a little bit of change gives you sometimes a large percentage. Now, um, industrial machinery is probably the, um, the, the machinery investment metric that best ties with manufacturing. And yes, we're looking at 9% growth in, in 2016, then coming to 6% in 2017. But I tell you, in previous cycles and more quote-unquote normal cycles in, the past, in modern history, going back 20 or 30 years, you'd see double digits. Yes, we have positives, and you know, uh, you know, we have positives. And again, broadening that out to capital investment, um, industrial machinery is most tied to ma- manufacturing. Yes, we have seven, nine percent uh, forecast. But again, you'd go back in history, you'd see ten, twelve, fifteen. You know, you'd you'd see uh, double digits. And exports are another one that tend to be again because of what we tend to export tend to be fairly bulky. Yes, positive. Four percent exports in sixteen and seventeen. Again, you look past history, not to sound utterly repetitive, but it's the key point of the day. You know that normally in history, ten, twenty, thirty years ago, when during a recovery period, exports would be in double, export growth would be in double digits. So perspective um, is is important here. Uh, on a, another topic, Cliff, uh, uh, the mining. We already talked a little bit about uh, mining and oil and gas, but getting right. more into the into the granular, you know, we're we're talking about uh, fourteen, fifteen percent reductions over the next. Uh, two years and perhaps a bump in 17. Uh, all this is very nice for the, the guy who's driving a, a gas guzzler. Oil prices are down. Uh, I think it's now around $47. Uh, I think the sweet spot is probably around 60, uh, $60 $70. But uh, what's, what's your feel about this? Is, are these realistic uh, declines of 14 yeah, unfortunately they are. I wish that was not the case. But uh, let's let's go back again to oil prices. And I, I talked about oil prices being a negative for manufacturing, because um, you know this country smartly invested in energy supply. Uh, we, they listened 
to economists and said that it was, you know, it was very necessary for us to sort of become uh, less um, energy dependent on, um, on, on nations that are less than friendly to us. But, uh, you know, so, so when the pl- uh, oil prices plunged, that hurt that part of manufacturing. But I think we have to broaden the psychology. Let's, let's go back to the macro picture again. We have to broaden that psychology out a bit. Again, why did Mark, other than the obvious point of energy being a larger part of manufacturing, why did markets get so concerned about bolts and oil prices? Yes, it's a larger part of manufacturing, but it's putting money in, in, in the pockets of consumers. It's, it's probably keeping the Federal Reserve at bay because inflation becomes less of a threat. Well, in this post-crisis world, the, the, the true scare word is deflation. Not inflation, but deflation. And again, with all the presentations that I give to executives, I have to spend some time explaining deflation. Deflation is not slower inflation. It's actually a fall in the average price level um, of a given economy. It's rare. It's really a very long time ago, the 30s and the 40s, that we actually worried about deflation on a global scale. But it's also economically toxic. And it's economically toxic because it, it, it deters um, incentives to, to spend, uh, for consumers to spend. Why, why am I spending on that coat when it's going to be cheaper next week? For businesses to invest because I have no pricing power, how do I get uh, profitability? And we are now in a world where the, the key word, the key fear is deflation. And unfortunately, the, the market fears that oil, falling oil, is indicative of deflation the evidence is correct. It's there. If you look at commodities prices, we have a broadly falling um, group of commodities prices just because of glo- A, global weakness, and B, fears about deflation kind of feeding on themselves. Now, if you look at actual price data in key regions, it's not, they're not quite, uh, although the eurozone dipped below zero, uh, consumer price inflation in the eurozone dipped below zero for a bit. It's not quite there yet, but it's been tumbling. And, and this, is, this is a world where price, fundamental price pressures, even in spite of dramatic monetary policy, is on the downside. So commodities in this world and commodity exporters, I mean, Canada's in a recession. Why should, the, why should the country that's pretty well managed north of us be in a recession? That, that seems, seem, well, Canada's a commodities exporter, and it's an exporter to China. So, uh, and, you know, and, and China's slowing growth, what it, uh, China is what re- economists refer to as a monopsonist in the purchase of, of commodities. They have a dramatic sort of cornering of the market uh, because it, it, it's, a, uh, it's a resource scarce um, area of the world, even though it's, it's a dramatic user of resources. So when it slows as much as, as it has, um, that is putting downward pressure on the monopsonistic um, demand for uh, those resources, and it is falling dramatically. So, you know, getting back to your 17% decline with this kind of price hysteria on the downside, with falling oil prices, with falling commodities prices, that's, that's really hurting machinery. Um, producers, and we've seen it in the Maypie membership. It's really hitting them on the head. So no, unfortunately, I don't think that 17% decline in the in the context of a broadly deflation sensitive, deflation happening, deflation fearing um, global economy. No, that 17 looks uh, unfortunately right on the mark to me. Going back into further into your response, uh, you were talking about the. Uh, the person who's saving $50 a tank uh, in, in gas, 
um, and they're putting it in their pocket when they really should be out spending it. Uh, the point is, are, are you seeing where they are actually spending the money, or are they yeah, taking it's, it's down personal right. it's debt? A good point. It's, it's, it's been erratic. Um, yes, to some extent, they're paying down debt. Although, from what I what I can see is the you know the the the, uh, the big repair the most of I follow Federal Reserve data to look at household balance sheet structures, and from what I can see, most of the balance sheet repair that has taken place in the household sector seems seems to be <coughs> behind us. Um, now, what are they doing lately? It, there, there's enough data to suggest to me that consumer spending is on a moderate incline. It, you know, two, it was 2.7% increase in personal consumption expenditures during 2014. That's a modest improvement from the previous two years. And except for the winter this year, we've had pretty strong consumer spending. So, uh, you know, there's enough to suggest that um, consumer spending, you know, now most of it is happening because job growth. One of the really, one of the true bright spots in a not-so-bright world is U.S. job growth. That's been better. That's been, you know, at least giving the consumer some confidence, even if wage growth has been less than expected in light of uh, labor market improvement, an entire uh, new subject. But it it does suggest to me that um, sooner if, if it's not happening already that this fall in oil prices and the concomitant fall in uh, gasoline prices even with some of the inefficiencies in, in petroleum refining in certain markets like uh, Chicago and L A uh, you know it, it does suggest to me that the consumer is at least uh, you know responding positively if not dramatically so but responding positively. To um, the fall in uh, oil prices and in um, and gasoline prices. Remember, what, what what what's really going to be interesting to see? We're coming to the winter, and it's not just that a tank of gas is going to be less money, but heating your home is going to be less money. And we'll really see what it does as we get into uh, the latter months of this year. Uh, we're going to be uh, taking a break here in a moment. Uh, Tim, you want to introduce that? Sure. Let's take a let's take a quick commercial break, and we'll be back with Cliff Waldman from uh, Maypie, uh, talking about the U.S. industrial outlook, uh, and um, we'll kind of get a feel for some other subjects within his report, and maybe talk about uh, what's happening in the stock market a little bit. I'd like to get his read on on Volkswagen and what might happen to the uh, auto industry because of that. But we'll be back in just a few minutes after this commercial break. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. How do you keep your business humming? Where do you go when you're looking for quality suppliers of new equipment? Components, MRO supplies, repair services, or even raw materials. 30 years ago, you would have turned to the Thomas Register. Today, those big green books are better than ever at thomasnet.com industry's leading platform for product sourcing and supplier discovery. You can easily find that local machine shop, national distributor, OEM, or any supplier having the right quality certification. Fast and free. You can even get to specific products, components, or downloadable 3D CAD drawings simply by entering specifications or part numbers. There's a reason ThomasNet.com has become the go-to supplier discovery tool for procurement professionals and engineers. There's simply no other resource like it, and it's all free. Go to thomasnet.com today and see how top-notch supplier discovery doesn't have to put a dent into your bottom line. 
American Crane and Equipment Corporation in Douglasville, Pennsylvania, is a leader in specialized cranes, hoists, and material handling equipment for industries including aerospace, nuclear, oil and gas, transit, construction, and waste handling. Call 877-877-6778 or visit AmericanCrane.com. That's AmericanCrane.com or 877-877-6778. All Metals and Forge Group is an ISO 9001 AS and EN 9100 manufacturer of open die forgings and seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, copper, titanium, and nickel alloys. Visit us at steelforge.com or call 800-600-9290. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. You're listening to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We're here with Cliff Waldman, Director of Economic Studies at the Manufacturers Alliance for Productivity and Innovation Foundation, and also with my co-host, Lou Weiss, who is president of All Metals and Forge Group, the sponsor for Manufacturing Talk Radio. If you want to listen to any of these shows, you can find them at mfgtalkradio.com. Cliff, before we went to break, we were starting to talk about uh, some things like uh, how's the the, uh, automobile sector going to do? It looks to be doing very well, but suddenly we've got uh, quite an upset with our friends at Volkswagen. How's that going to impact things? Well, I'm going to respectfully – the one thing I try to do in in all public deliberations, even private ones, is to uh, get away from um, speaking to – problems or issues with any one company. I, I think it, it's been a, um, a policy that, that has served as well. I'm going to continue. Now, as, as far as um, the automobile sector itself, it's been stronger than a, a lot of people expected. I think, again, that's, that's job growth, that's um, the confidence that comes along with job growth. It's low interest rates. It's uh, credit lines being basically you know, accommodative. It's been, uh, you know, our, our auto sector learning from learning, you know, learning from mistakes. So I, I, I think for a while, it's not going to go on forever, but I think for a while, you know, autos are going to certainly be a strong part of the, uh, the consumer complex for those macroeconomic reasons. Okay. And what about computer and electronic products? I know it hasn't done well this year. Is it going to do better in 16 and 17? And if so, what would be driving it? Because it, it, I, I'm not sure how well it's doing to uh, support any kind of real growth. Well, computer and electronic products, remember, these are very short-lived capital. Most people tend to, um, you know, and, and the nature of them changes dramatically. I mean, that, that, think of the turmoil in the general area of computer and electronic products. All of a sudden, people are getting from their smartphones what they used to, to get from their computers. And then, you know, obsolesce, the, the obsolescence cycle just keeps getting shorter and shorter. And, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of very positive, very innovation-enhancing uh, turmoil in that. That being said, you know, businesses that use computers, that basically use computers, every, you know, it, 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 every two, three, four years, they're going to replace them. So you might have a weak period, then a, a strong spike, and a weak period, and a, um, a strong spike. I don't anticipate that it's going to be a major contributor to growth, but I, I think it'll at least be, you know, uh, I, I don't think it's going to be a deterrent uh, from, from growth either. But I, I think the key there is to look more broadly than just the cycle and think about the um, – 
the the the, uh, the the periods of obsolescence, new new computers, the, the new ways people are getting um, information, uh, mo- mobility, uh, you know, iPads versus uh, computers on your desk. We see it with our own members, and then uh, so uh, th- there's a lot going on beyond just whether it you know it's strong or weak for the moment there. Uh, Cliff, uh, one of the other industry sectors that's near and dear to uh, All Metals and Forge Group, and that's the aerospace and aerospace products right. and defense uh, industries. Uh, give us a bit of a, a Cliff uh, Waldman take on that. Well, it's a strong, well standing ovation here. It's a strong sector for the U.S. I think it's right. one of the few we have a SERP. Few manufacturing sectors. We have a surplus, and we invested very well. We we innovate uh, beautifully in this area. Very competitive area. Um, it has a very long cycle. It takes a long, long time to build an airplane. Uh, but I think this is one where you know we we aerospace. You know we're seeing seven percent growth ahead of us in sixteen and seventeen. Air travel is absolutely booming. Uh, and and will continue to boom as the world, you know, in many ways gets smaller. And I, I see, uh, again, I, you know, ticket prices may sort of have a negative pressure, so that may be uh, a, a little bit of a downside um, issue there. And it's it's curious to see what's going to happen to uh, the retail end of uh, air travel. As, uh, as if oil prices stay, you know, at very low levels, so that that may be an issue. But certainly, with the investments we've made, uh, and just the general fact that in volume terms, air travel is so strong, I, I think those seven percent for the next couple of years that we're showing seven percent growth in, in sixteen and seventeen, uh, I, I think that we may even end up revising those up uh, a little bit on our next forecast. A positive point. It's certainly a very positive point for U.S. industry. As compared to the European aerospace manufacturing uh, world, uh, I'm not quite up on the Airbus uh, and European uh, aerospace market. How do we compare with that? We uh, we made better investments. We have a we have a better system. We have better supply chain. This is one area where we are. Uh, we are, uh, I think, quite successful. We, I, I think we probably have the most successful aerospace um, as a whole um, in, in the world. Now, again, the world's getting smaller. You're talking about uh, acquisitions and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, integration and, and global regulation. So we, it's hard to totally separate them out. But uh, I, I think, you know, relative to most parts of the advanced world, uh, our aerospace sector is, is going to stay strong and, and you know, pro, uh, propel us at uh, fairly good growth rates. No pun intended. It, it, it seems as though the same thing that happened in the automotive industry where auto, uh, foreign auto manufacturers came here to the U.S., it seems the same thing is happening in the aerospace world. Uh, you have uh, Airbus uh, that just announced that they're opening up right. in uh, – um, one of the Carolinas, I believe, or Georgia, uh, perhaps Tim might know. Um, and it seems as though more and more uh, uh, are beginning to come over here. Well, uh, let me let me suggest one thing. A, a lot of uh, most of the times when you hear those stories, either with uh, foreign automakers or foreign, um, you know, air, aerospace uh, firms, it happens in the South. Now, the South is an interesting uh, area, and I, I was involved in a very a very extensive study. 
of the, the advanced manufacturing potential uh, for the South that I completed and presented in 2013, so you know, not that long ago. But uh, the South is investing in the transportation supply chain as a way of uh, picking it up. It, it, it's a lagging area of the country in some ways, but one with great potential. And they saw what inexpensive labor costs and business-friendly you know, um, atmospheres did for bringing in foreign automakers. That, uh, you know, that saved their lives down there. Now, now you know, it, I think much of the same thing is happening uh, with foreign aerospace firms. So it's, it's the same principle. So it, it, let, let's be a little more specific. It's not just that they're coming to the U.S., but in the same way that Volkswagen and a lot of the foreign automakers are coming to the South, which, uh, again, you know, after uh, a year of extensive study, realized has, has – while they need to do something, they have set the pace very well for a, um, a dramatic boost from transportation investment. So it, it's the South that's the issue, not, not so much the U.S. as a whole. Well, not only are foreign uh, aerospace organizations going to the South, but so are the West Coast aerospace companies here in the United States moving to the Southwest right. and, and right. Mexico as well. Uh, so it is, right. it is a, cause, a cost factor. Uh, that is uh, absolutely playing a role in this. Right. Uh, uh, Cliff, I, I want to talk just for a moment about iron and steel products and what's happening mm. in that industry. Um, I know that uh, Lou has seen a weaker year this year in All Metals and Forge Group than last year. What's happening in the industry overall? It's just weak global manufacturing. That's very tied to the manufacturing sector as a whole. If, if manufacturing comes back more on a global scale than we think it will, and on a U.S. scale, uh, then that you know that will be a, a stronger forecast. But that's that's just you know a, a, you know think about what we make machinery. Uh, in machinery, you know, particularly in the early stages of, of uh, recovering from the crisis was a, a significant propeller of growth and it, it's been a, you know it's been a significant propeller of uh, you know of manufacturing growth in the United States generally speaking uh, you know with, with a kind of weakish year uh, you know a state capital investment atmosphere that hurts iron and steel those are fundamental inputs and it put a very necessary uh, sector for uh, for all of us for sure oh yes uh, what's your take on what's going on in the stock market? Uh, is that something that uh, you can comment on? Yeah, a it, lot. It's just yeah, sure. It, it's confusion, and it, it's justifiable confusion. We, you know, I know that commentators in every age like to think that they are living through unique times, but there, there's a, a you know, as somebody who has who has studied. U.S. and to extend global economic history going back to the Great Depression, we've never quite seen anything like this. I mean, the Great Depression was the great tragedy of the past hundred years, and we did not have any – we're near the, um, the, the wreckage that we had here. But we did have – we have had an unusual event. It was really the 2008-2009 the, the credit crash – the world crisis was really the premier – was the seminal global event of this age of, of globalization. And, uh, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, policymakers have had to do some things that, they, that they've never had to do done before. We have um, – and things are happening that I will admit that economists have 
that are so in economists that we have some things to learn. Um, the United States Federal Reserve has been accommodating, uh, uh, you know, the the U.S. economy with more liquidity than it ever has had in its in its you know more than slightly more than 100 year history now. Yet inflation, core inflation, if you take away all the volatile components of oil, oil is still below two percent. That is not supposed to happen. So you know you have unusual things happening. You have unusual. Um, uh, uncertainties in policy. You have had, we have had a tremendous bull market since hitting bottom in March of 2009. I mean, we have had an, un- uh, an unusual run. So the stock market was probably, you know, due for something of a healthy pullback in itself. And then, and again, pullbacks are healthy. But you combine that with the fact that you have a, a policy posture that nobody has any historical precedent from. We have the second largest economy in the world, which is still something of an enigma wrapped in a mystery, at least politically and to some extent in terms of its still weak economic intelligence, doing something that could be you know, worse than just the slowing that I described. And you know, markets hate uncertainty, and you know, every day there's a piece of news that either – very bad or a relief, and you know traders sort of get in on that, and uh, that's why you have volatility. It's volatility born of truly historical uncertainty. Let me ask you, uh, Cliff, do you ever get to sleep at night, or do you stay up absorbing all this data and topics of uh, global <laughs> magnitude? <laughs> Well, well it, it, it's very nice of you asking, though, but I, I, I do sleep just fine. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Uh, one, one of my last uh, notes that I'd like just to uh, touch on and uh, see what the last quarter of this year is going to look like. So why don't you give us the Cliff Waldman forecast for the next last quarter? And the last quarter of, in, uh, of this year? Yes. Uh, this year in terms of manufacturing? Yes, sir. Uh, I, I think more of the same. I think we're going to have slow growth, uh, you know, two, two per, in, in the 2% range. Uh, you know, listen, we got past the, the unusual winter that we had uh, at the beginning of this year. I, I think the dollar has settled. Uh, you know, the shock of the dollar spike has settled back a little bit, not much. Um, oil, at least, is, um, is, is hit bottom but is at least stabilizing. I think there's a, a great deal of policy uncertainty. That's going to uh, a great deal of policy uncertainty that is going to keep hovering over the economy. So uh, again, I, I think it's I think it's going to be a slightly calmer time, but I I do think that it's it's uh, it's going to be you know fairly stable. Okay, uh, that should be a relief for some of us. Uh, others who is it going to be uh, is it going to be strengthening at all, Cliff? We we'll see. Well, again, I, I think it's going to be around two percent for the U.S. economy. You know, and then the two we're not going to break out of the, this two percent sluggishness. Manufacturing might might get you know above four percent, four point five, four point six percent. But I, again, I'd have to, you know just given the fact that you know the the, the demons and the uh, the uncertainties are not leaving us now. I'm going to put us. I'm going to give you the four and a half percent forecast, but put a slightly downside risk on that. Okay. Okay. What is the uh, outlook for the retail sector? You know, the, the holiday shopping season look like. Uh, you know, job growth has been pretty good. It's been one of the better um, points for the U.S. economy and, and, and for the world. 
Wage growth has not. Uh, I think we will have a, a fairly decent uh, retail shopping um, season. Uh, thankfully, more people work. Y- you have now. You have to put that, like everything else these days, you have to uh, put that with a grain of salt. Yes, the unemployment rate has fallen, and it's at 5.1 percent. But it's at 5.1 percent when we are at a you know a 30 some. We are at the lowest labor force participation rate since the late 1970s, and we we understand some of it. Some of it is demographics with the uh, retirement of the baby boomers. Some of it is just the still quivers from the Great Recession and the feeling that there's quote unquote nothing out there for me. But um, you know we have enough job growth. Uh, enough steady job growth that's been going on for a long time, for years now, that I, I think you know uh, people will do will do the shopping that they want to do. We'll have a pretty decent, we'll have a decent if not spectacular Christmas shopping center this season. Now, in terms of this enigma wrapped in a mystery, uh, Cliff, in terms of the economy and you know what's happening and how unusual this is for the United States to come out of this great recession and. You know, everyone is, was looking for the big boom, and it's never come. And it's been yeah, a little growth, a little retrenchment, a little growth. Um, what are the unusual factors in the macro sense that are kind of buffeting this and making it very difficult for anybody to feel confident in? Well, it was a, first of all, it was an, go, let's go back to 2009. It was the unusual nature of the recession. We called it a recession for for convenience sake, but you know, as much recessions are, are tend to be normal events in capitalist economies. They usually happen because of the buildup of excesses of inventories, or uh, frankly, you know, overdoing it on the part of the Federal Reserve to try to stem inflation. This was a break. This was a financial and a housing bust of the type that we have not seen since the 1930s. So, you know, coming out of it, we had, you know, such uh, such fear that it, you know, created a sense of, you know, do I really want to take those first steps? So you had fear and loathing on the part of ma- major um, economic actors. And then we had a uh, first, second of all, it was a very global event. So, you know, one thing about globalization is when you have one weak link in the chain, it affects the rest of the chain, and that that was hurting us too. But then we had a, you know a series of, of frankly policy issues in this country: the debt fights of 2011, the constant government shutdowns, the feeling that government policy was was you know with the exception of the Federal Reserve was going in the wrong direction as far as getting the economy. Um, moving again. And then we have this unusual story of deflation. The deflation has been a, a word that, well, it's ha- we haven't completely hit it. We were still sort of just hanging above the zero line in terms of global pricing. It, it's a hard thing to, to, to pull away from because it, it's a disincentive to spend. It's a disincentive to invest. And on top of that, as if all that weren't enough, a lot of structural factors that have been in the works for a long time sort of hit at the same time that we're trying to get out of this recession. Demographics around the world, um, the population growth is slowing. Labor force growth is, is slowing. There's a question now in the United States about not only what growth is, which is what your question is, but about potential U.S. growth. Productivity has been slowing dramatically in the wake of um, this um, of the recovery from the Great Recession. So you, you wonder not only what is U.S. economic growth, but what is potential U.S. economic growth. So it, it, it's a nasty combination of, of the 
the dramatic difference between this recession and all the others of the modern era that was a break, the global nature of it, the poor, you know, the poor set of policy mistakes here, here and frankly in, in large parts of the world, the pull of deflation, which you know, sort of is a negative for uh, for investing, the long-term problem with investment, and demographics, which are slowing, you know, the flow of people um, into the labor force. Put that all together, and it's, it's actually we have to be thankful we've done, done as well as we have. But certainly, it's not not as well as we've done in the past in terms of coming out of coming out of recessions. And you're talking about the uh, the uh, pull, the negative pull on people going uh, into the labor force. Uh, and Blue and I have done a number of shows on the skills gap and how that's a, right. Affecting manufacturing and their inability to find people who have got the necessary skills to perform the jobs over the next 10 years that they need, in the, coupled with the fact that, that all the people are the baby boomers are retiring out. Where do you see right. that in a macro sense for the United States and even for the globe? Does the globe suffer from the same thing that we foresee? Oh, yes. You hear about it in lots of countries, in the U.K. Now, I, I think the skills gap is a, is a global problem. Now, it, it's because, you know, you have to be careful. We, we tend to name things, and then the names become reality. We are just sort of at the leading edge of understanding this. But I, I, I would suggest that for manufacturing specifically, there are two things that are hitting sort of at the same time. One, let, let's deal with a positive thing for manufacturing. We are at a leading edge. We are in a period of rapid process innovation. New, dramatic new technologies have really um, upped, upped the potential of manufacturing. And I, I I've been writing and I'm continuing to write on things like 3D printing. I'm, I'm now writing an article on, on robotics. All these things are going to change the very – the whole – not just make a difference in manufacturing, but change the, the nature of what manufacturing is. But whenever there's changes in technology, the labor force often lags. Well, the problem this time is not only the labor force lagging, we have less of the labor force. You have demographic trends which have been in the works for some time which have been slowing Population growth slowing, uh, you know, the size of the labor force happening at the same time while technological advancement is pushing forward the need for skilled labor, and then you know it, it's very natural that the two of them are going to rub up against each other um, and and create uh, you know this perceived gap. Uh, both public and private, it, it's not going to go away by itself. Both public and private investments are going to be needed, uh, and and the the country that does that. Does that the best with its manufacturing, making both public and private investments in effectively implementing these new tools into the manufacturing process and then effectively training uh, particularly the lower-skilled workers in manufacturing is the one that's going to win. So the skills gap should also be seen as an opportunity. Everybody's suffering from it. Everybody knows it's not rocket science to figure out what to do with it, but the country that comes up with the best combination of public and private policies to approach it, given the good things that could happen with manufacturing in this new world of interesting technologies, is the one that's going to win. But it seems as though there's a pretty strong movement afoot with the Manufacturing Day event, which is now coming up on us for the fourth time in the last uh, right. four years. And uh, I believe last year they had uh, about 1,500 uh, events uh, nationwide in every state in the country. So 
apparently there are manufacturers, organizations, educators, politicians, and so on who are really participating and, and uh, uh, blowing the horn about Manufacturing Day and the skills issues and so on. Matter of fact, right. next uh, week, Tim and I are going to be giving a, a keynote uh, address at uh, New Jersey Institute of uh, Technology uh, on mm-hmm. this very topic from. about uh, from uh, you know g- the skills the skills gap, uh, and that's what Manufacturing Day is all about. And uh, it, it seems as though there's a lot of important people, a lot of important organizations who are really getting it and uh, doing a lot to uh, promote uh, the younger generation getting into the uh, the new high-tech manufacturing. And uh, I think that's going to help us uh, greatly in the long run. You know, you know it, it, part of it's a cultural issue. It, 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 it's not just here, but certainly in the United States. For a while, there was always the, rightly or wrongly, there was the perception that the smart kids became doctors, lawyers, bankers, consultants. They didn't go into manufacturing. I think as a result of the kind of efforts that you mentioned, there, there's a turn in there's a, there's a, I'm perceiving a slow turn in, in getting these kids to realize that there's, there's very, very promising careers for them, very international, very interesting careers uh, for them in manufacturing. I, I, you know, the more of an effort we make along these lines, the better it is. And, you know, it, the, the deeper cultural issue, and then this this is very hard for me to understand, is that for a while this country really sort of um, had a, a kind of soft cultural bias against two things. One, against people who work with their hands. And we are so lacking in kids who really have a skill, who know how to build things, how to work with their hands. And it, it's, you know, it's such a smart thing. Uh, to be able to do. The second thing is that uh, for reasons that are, are uh, I will tell you that other economists have commented on this as well, for reasons that I don't understand, we, we really had a, a less than good attitude towards scientists and making a, a very positive career of scientists. Many, many young people wanted to be physicists, applied physicists, chemists, but it, it's not a good career. It doesn't, it, it doesn't, do well in, in terms of earnings, etc. Now, if you think about uh, people who work with their hands and, and scientists, uh, those are two rather important subsets of people for uh, for U.S. manufacturing advancement. We're slowly, you know, more and more policymakers, more and more business leaders, uh, more and more youth groups are sort of talking about the importance of science, the importance uh, and the great skill of, of you know, of, of handiwork. And as those two things change, it'll automatically push up to realizing that, hey, manufacturing is an interesting career. I get to build, I get to think, I get to plan, I get you know, an international view of things. It's a global stabilizer, et cetera. But we just have to, we have to get rid of what, what we're at the root of that problem, our cultural biases for certain things and cultural biases against certain things, even though they didn't really make much economic sense. I, I think that one of the uh, uh, points that we've run across in running these shows and uh, uh, having interviews with uh, uh, professionals such as yourself is that the uh, compensation package for manufacturing today is a lot different than it was way back when. And I, yes. I believe the number is uh, – Three years on the job, you're making seventy thousand dollars a year plus benefits. 
uh, managerial jobs, you're starting at the low end of the six figures. So there is a lot of financial reward as well as uh, uh, satisfaction and job and job performance. Uh, well, it, 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 I don't want to, you know, uh, I don't want to generalize one number. It really depends. Remember, manufacturing is a very large space. It, it, it's, you know, it ranges from food to pharmaceuticals to machinery, all, all tied together by the fact that they're goods, but they're dramatically different goods, dramatically different skills. Um, the compensation package can be can be very good. Unfortunately, we noticed you know uh, the wage picture kind of darkening a bit in manufacturing, and I I think frankly that's because globalization is moving apace. It, it, a theory that economists have often referred to as factor price equalization, where true global markets sort of uh, hew to the lowest. I don't want to say it's happening, but those pressures are there. And again, in, in a time of, of of a deflationary fear, deflationary mentality, it's been putting negative pressure on manufacturing wages. Nonetheless, for young people who go in and do well in, in all kinds of ranges and uh, occupations, it can certainly keep pace with the private uh, with the private sector. And and there's a, there's frankly, a, you know, uh, I, I talk to a lot of millennials, an awful lot of millennials. And they, they what they want to do is to learn a lot. They really are. They, 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 that generation has a lot of curiosity, from what I can see, and when, there's no shortage of them in Washington. Um, and there's a chance to learn quite a bit um, in a manufacturing career. By the way, just as a point, just as a point of interest, I think the next generation's name, if I'm not mistaken, is Expotentials. I've heard uh, three or four of the uh, uh, things, and we haven't officially uh, we haven't officially named them. The, 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 the leading edge thinkers are, are on that kind of, those naming things are demographers like Neil Howe, <laughs> who's, who's, right. he's done some exceptional, really cutting edge thinking on uh, on g- generational issues. I, I, I believe he was the one who originally coined the term millennial. Right, I believe you're correct. Well, We've we've been talking with Cliff Waldman, Director of Economic Studies at the Manufacturers Alliance for Productivity and Innovation Foundation. Cliff, we appreciate you having on having you on the show again. Thank you for being Good. with us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, great conversation. Thank you, Cliff. Thank you, gentlemen. And, Thank uh, you very much. And Lou, what's going on with next week's show? Um, at the risk of repeating myself, uh, I did mention at the beginning of the show, but uh, next week's show we're going to have uh, – it's going to be manufacturing week for us. Uh, we've got two or three uh, – actually three events. But on Tuesday, our regular show, we're going to have uh, Chandra Brown, Deputy uh, Assistant Secretary for Manufacturing at the International Trade Administration for the Department of Commerce. That's quite a title. Hope she's got large uh, business cards. Uh, Ed Udell is president and CEO of Fabricators Manufacturers Association. And Jennifer McNeely, president of the Manufacturing Institute, join us in talking about Manufacturing Day, which will be a little bit more of what we've already talked about today. Tim? Well, stay tuned on our website, mfgtalkradio.com, for what's coming up uh, on Manufacturing Talk Radio. That's a wrap for today's show. We appreciate you being with us, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.